Roll sound, Scotty. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Stinking Balls podcast with Scott. Joining me today is my co-host from the Real Britannia podcast, Stephen. Good morning, mate. Morning, mate. I'm happy to be on here as a guest and bring a hint of professionalism. Well, just a hint. You'll be the first. Be, be the first time. Uh, yeah, I'll do it on this one. I don't do it on the Real Britannia. Great to have you back. It's becoming like a a welcome regular addition to the Stinking Paws family. This is something we're going to carry on doing now, isn't it? You're going to come back. Roughly every three episodes or so, isn't it? I think we decided. That's that's what you um, kindly invited me to do. So yes, I'll, I'll happily take up on on that offer. Um, it's nice to, I think I said before, it's nice to be able to stretch the wings and occasionally discuss something um, beyond British shows. Um, so um, I think we've got a number of things we can pull in for us two to talk about that aren't British films. And this um, today, I think, is a absolute um, gem oh you've come up with a cracker this week a movie it was on my list of shame until quite recently probably only watched it for the first time about a year and a half two years ago and of course i've, I've given it a rewatch this week it's it's 1953 it's billy wilder stalag 17 starring well, william holden peter graves otto preminger before we dive in i haven't given you any pre-warning of this by the way before we dive in i'm, I'm going to Spend a couple of minutes giving you one of my little TED Talks again. Oh, that's, that's nice. That was educational. <laughs> um, obviously about Billy Wilder, because it's somebody that hasn't come up too often, I thought, on the podcast. But when you look at the history of Billy Wilder and his CV, he actually has. Now, Billy Wilder, born in Austria, a career that spanned five decades possibly best known for Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, both of which we have covered previously on the podcast, and which, you know, in my mind, for any other director, just to have one of those on their CV would have been enough. Yeah, absolutely. But take a little look at this lot, right? He was the writer on Ninochka and Ball of Fire. The writer-director of a particular favourite of yours, Double Indemnity. Yes. Also wrote and directed The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Sabrina, The Seven Year Itch, The Spirit of St. Louis. The list goes on, right? You can talk about Hitchcock, your Spielbergs, your Kubricks. How about this, right? For a run of movies. You know when we try and find someone that's had a run of three particular cracking movies and he's quite difficult yeah. sometimes. It's a very exclusive club where you get somebody that has three blockbusters in a row right 
Between 1950 and 1960, he wrote and directed 10 movies in that decade, right? Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Stalag 17, Sabrina, The Seven Year Itch, The Spirit of St. Louis, Love in the Afternoon, Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment. (laughs) Five out of those 10 are listed in the US National Film Registry. He won seven Academy Awards, including the Irving J. Thalberg Memorial Award, plus three Best Picture Awards. He was honoured with the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award in 86 and a BAFTA Fellowship in 1995. I'm going to stop there because this is going to go into a bit like that Frank Capra thing that I went on a couple of weeks back. Let's just hear about your thoughts. Some of your favourite what Billy Wilder movies. It's difficult not to to not like any of those ten that I've just knocked out there, mate. As you, as you said, I mean... the there's a great many films in there that it's easy to have um, respect for and enjoyment of um, because he just has a, a back catalogue that in, in can't be ignored and um, it's got some of the, the, the greatest films to um, have been produced from Hollywood, to, you know, not just in that period, but overall, really. Um, certainly, you know, I... I as you've said, uh, double indemnity is is a favourite of of mine, um, which is not to knock the you know the other big ones that he's been oh, involved no, in. No, no. Um, but Ace in the Hole, yeah, as as well, is something that I think is one of the ones that is a little bit overshadowed when, as far as looking at his back catalogue, just because of the fact that there are so many great films in there. Yes. As you've said, yes. if just one of those films was in somebody else's sort of filmography, then then you know that would. He's got, you know, several of them at least. Um, so that's good. And there's even some of the other films that are a bit less less well known. I mean, I, I think there's, I can't remember if it's The Foreign Affair or A Foreign Affair, yes. I can't remember which yeah. it is, um, which, you know, I think has a, a, a link in actually with today's film. But that, you know, that is one of the, you know, one of the lesser known films of his in a way, um, but still is a great film and that's just an example. I mean, you could go through virtually all his films and find out that there was the films that get overlooked in preference for others. It is, it's amazing. And there's all, all sorts of other things in there. There's, you know, the, the original Casino Real, which is a bit of a, a kitsch um, pleasure. He was involved in, in the writing of that uncredited mm. and the same with Ocean's Eleven, the original and all these kind of things. He's, he's got such a, a great, um, back catalogue there picking out anything is is always going to be difficult I think but um, as far as um, the the major ones absolutely the you know, double indemnity does stand out I think I was as, just a, as the say, main favourite for me yeah but if you the, had the to other, pick it's not to in any way denigrate the vast swathes of other films that I can enjoy you know everyone you can you can, you can mention basically naming from his filmography. I can you know can go oh yeah that's great and that, and that is genuinely great. It's not just it's good. It's great. Yeah. Um, if, it's, if you had to pick out of that ten, you'd probably say Double Indemnity would be top of the tree for you. Yeah, it's. I think it's just one that just it. it when I first watched it, it, it made it the right time in the right mood, and obviously revisited it whenever I've been in that same mood and 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 everything. So that's why. It maybe gels with me. It's the one I think I've seen most of his as oh, well. Wow. Okay. Uh, with 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 the you know close follow up being stuff like seventeen. See, my one would be Sabrina. Yeah. Um, would be the one that I've seen the most, even above the apartment. 
or some yeah. like it hot. Well, I don't know. Some like it hot. I think were probably the one I've seen the most. And and, and in no way can I find any way of of, of, of knocking any of those three films because no. they are they are truly great films. Yeah, but I just haven't seen them as often just because um, I haven't just you know I just haven't turned to them at the no, right time no. um, to for rewatches. That's all. It's not because there's anything bad about them. They they are you know great films. Yeah. Um, We'll and, have, we'll have, mm, that's sorry. his 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 greatness that you know he just kept pumping these things out. It's yeah. amazing, really. We'll have to do double indemnity at some point because we spoke about it on a previous podcast of yours years ago. Yeah, that we co-released. Yeah, with, uh, when uh, was that? That was that's got to be five or six years ago now. At least, yeah. And I haven't watched it since, so I, I'm I'm definitely oh, due right. a re, I'm due a rewatch. So. I think I've already revealed my hand that um, <laughs> I think it's worth a rewatch. Yeah. But yeah, and I'd be you know obviously happy to review it again. Um, that, as I say, that doesn't take away just my fondness for that film. Uh, my appreciation for that film doesn't take away from any other his films. I'd be you know gushing still about a dozen of his other films that <laughs> that he's done. And the fact it was as as well, you know, not to he was a writer and a director and. There's very few people out there who do both to, to such acclaim and to such quality. And often when people are directing their own things, they don't quite, they get a bit blinded. There's a bit of a blind side to them. They don't, you know, they, they don't quite come off as well as it might have done um, if somebody else had taken charge of it. Um, but he's managed to, um, although he, he wrote twice as many things as he directed, he still mm. directed a, a vast amount. Well, and they were just great. The Hollywood years, there's about 32 major movies that he made just in Hollywood, or directed anyway. And I was just thinking, our, our dear friend Gabriella in South Africa has got a podcast just dedicated to the movies of Joan Crawford. And I'm just thinking, do you know what? It would be easy to do an entire podcast just on Billy Wilder. Those 32 movies, you could have a good run of 32 episodes. Yeah, and each one would be a cracker because each movie is a cracker. And then if you wanted to dip your toe into the you know the older stuff or the stuff that he wrote, somebody could come up with it. We haven't got time to do it, but somebody could come up with an entire Billy Wilder podcast quite easily. Because no, but you are tempted to add another podcast in now, aren't you? Know I've got a spare hour somewhere in the week to fit it in. <laughs> I'm sure I have. <laughs> okay, just a little insight into what we think of Billy Wilder and you probably get the impression already that we're a couple of fans uh, we'll let yeah. you decide as the podcast goes on off now to sort of mid-period Wilder 1953 Stalag 17 back after this was confining but never dull in Stalag 17. The boys were up to something new every minute. There were the races every afternoon. The dance on Saturday night. Did anybody ever tell you you had the most beautiful legs in the world? The cocktail hour when the bar was open. <coughs> what are you serving today? Nitric acid! And if you think everything was roses, it wasn't. Stalag 17 was a hellhole where no man ever escaped alive. One of us is a stoolie, a dirty, stinking stoolie. 
One of them a German spy reporting every move to von Scherbach, the commandant. One of them a hunted fugitive as the Nazis turned Stalag 17 inside out and upside down to find him. One of them a big time operator who played the million to one shot, tunneling out of Stalag 17. Just one more word. If I ever run into any of you bums on a street corner, just let's pretend we never met before. Stalag 17 premiered in the UK on May the 29th, 1953. Funny enough, its US premiere wasn't until four weeks later on July the 1st, so we got it before. Directed, as we say, by Mr. Billy Wilder, the screenplay by Edwin Bloom and Billy Wilder, which in turn was based on a play written by Donald Bevan and Edmund Trzinski, I believe it is, starring, as we said, William Holden. There's Don Taylor, Robert Strauss, Peter Graves... And talking of great directors, there's also Otto Preminger in there as well. Stephen's choice this week. Over to you for the synopsis, please, mate. Right. One night in 1944, in a German prisoner of war camp housing American airmen, two prisoners try to escape the compound and are quickly discovered and shot dead. Among the remaining men, suspicion grows that one of their own is a spy for the Germans. All eyes fall upon Sergeant Sefton, who everybody knows frequently makes exchanges with German guards for small luxuries to protect himself from the mob and his enraged fellow inmates, Sergeant Sefton resolved to find the true traitor in their midst. Excellent. Your choice, your movie. Yes. What's your history with it, mate? Tell us tell us why we're talking Stalag 17 today. It's one that I, I think in my naivety, going back um, 15 years maybe, um, in my naivety, I, I just stumbled upon by accident. I wasn't as, I don't think, as um, mature in, in my um, knowledge about um, the great directors from Hollywood and stuff. You know, I enjoyed watching films, but I didn't really have the, the background of, of knowledge maybe to be able to identify, um, hadn't put the time in to pay that much attention maybe. Mm. And um, just happening upon this... And watching it and just going wow, because on one side you know it is like you've got the um, plenty of films and stuff out there that are about army personnel and and stuff and almost comedic you know you've got the Sergeant Bilko and the Mash and, mm. and all this kind of stuff and there's a, a comedy element to this but in reality it is a more who done it type um, yes. film which is is a bit of a um, a misleading thing originally, which intrigued me and pulled me in that it was it was different to what I was expecting, and, and that was something I liked. So, um, so yeah, it's probably it's about fifteen years ago I watched it, and I think I've probably watched it about five times since then. Ooh, um, every you know, couple of years, I, I've I've tried to give it a bit of a um, a distance between because I, um, I like to. Uh, sort of not immediately remember who did do it, as it were, who the actual <laughs> villain of the piece is. Yeah. Um, because if I can just, just, just by lapse of memory, I mean, obviously, if I really put my mind to it, I could probably remember and construct a mind remember after a certain amount of time who um, is the villain of the piece in this. But 
if I just casually don't think about it, I can. If, after a certain number of years, I can actually um, just forget, so I'm able to watch it a bit fresher without that noise. But even if you do remember who who did it, as it were, um, there's the, the signs in the f- film for you to pick up on that are giving you the um, the, the clues right up until um, you get closer to the reveal, and that's quite nice that they've already given you. Giving you that evidence in there to help lead you there, and it's nice to notice them when you do actually already know. But this is—it's just pure quality, really, in my mm. opinion. The writing, the the, the directing, um, the performances, the way it's just constructed as, as a as a piece, um, just seem everything is is right about it. So um, that's why I'm a bit of a fan of it, really. <laughs> Bearing in mind its subject matter. Um, it's it's incredibly light-hearted. Yeah, it starts off with two people being killed, as I say. Yeah, well, it's, it's um, a 50-50 split between the comedy and the drama, I think, yeah. here. And you have to go into this movie quite open-minded because it's not going to be Hogan's Heroes and it's not going to be The Great Escape. It's it's pitched somewhere in between with yeah. this whodunit element to it as well. We've got sort of two extremes. You've got the two as you say, prisoner of war is being killed right at the very beginning. But then you get something like a drunken animal mistaking Shapiro for Betty Grable. Yeah. From fast to intense heartbreak and drama with this Agatha Christie sort of plot in the background as well. And, and as you say, this was only the second time that I watched it and I'd completely forgotten who the informer was. I, I, we may reveal it at some point. We may spoil it. And also, I, I think you can be forgiven for coming to this movie quite late in life because we mentioned many, many times that we watch certain films on, you know, on a Friday evening or a bank holiday weekend, and all those films that were always quite familiar. I don't remember this movie ever coming up too often on TV when we were kids. No, I think you're right there that, that there's a, a weird split the, of the films that we reference within Real Britannia that there's. The evening comedies and the James Bonds and non wisdoms and things like this that were there were the bank holiday films that mm. were were on for us to watch repeatedly and just catch and and then there was the other ones which were a bit more which had a bit more grit or substance to them in a in a way that was the Channel Four films or the stuff that was shown on on BBC Two on a um, a Friday night yes. at midnight sort of thing. Yeah, that was the other type of film that there was and. Whereas this doesn't fall into either of those categories, and although it's not particularly, I think there could have been a lot more swearing and and violence and gratuity in in, um, in the in the film that there was, so it's maybe toned down to make it a wider appeal as far as ratings go. It's still the subject matter wasn't really one that was applicable to being shown as a as a bank holiday or or wet Sunday <laughs> afternoon film, yeah. and it. It might not have fit within the category of something to be showing at, at midnight on BBC Two on a Friday night either in the eighties. It's it's a weird sort of combination. Yeah. Um, and say so if you're watching it for the first time, you might feel a little uncomfortable actually laughing in certain places because you think, hang on a minute, this is a serious subject matter. But, you know, yeah. people are genuinely getting shot in this movie. But then at the same time, you get this almost farcical element and the, and the animal character is completely over the top and very stagey. But there's an obvious reason for it being stagey because it's based on a Broadway play. 
It is, and the, the not quite gallows humour, but the, the concentration camp humour, as it were, um, is something that you would imagine would have to develop to some extent in order to help people cope with how ominous the situation was and how they were, you know, they were prisoners and they were you know, at, at risk of death at any point and the uh, maliciousness of somebody, of a guard who happened to maybe um, decide to take against them. Um, so the, the situation was dire. So making some kind of humour wherever they could was, you know, is, is understandable. But you've got the other aspect that the person who, one of the two people who wrote the original play it's based on, is actually, was somebody who was in a prisoner of war camp yes. in Austria. Yep. Um, and um, not only did they you know, write the original play, um, but they're also, they've got a bit part in, in the film. Yeah. Yeah, they were in, it was Stalag 17B in yeah. Austro-Hungary or Hungary or somewhere like that. Which they obviously dropped the B because if they'd done that in the United States, people would have gone, oh, well, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's like the madness <laughs> of King George story, isn't it? Is that yeah. where it comes from, isn't it? <laughs> we don't have to say too much at this point about Billy Wilder. I think we've covered... Yeah, sort of the yeah. directing side of things. We've extolled his virtues for the first ten minutes, but he got nominated for best director for this one. But it went to Fred Zinnemann for From Here to Eternity. And do you remember when we were chatting about Mr. Smith goes to Washington a few weeks back, and yeah. 1939 we decided was one of the golden years of Hollywood. 53 is not quite up there, but listen to this. What also was in the box office this year, mate? Roman Holiday, Shane. The Robe, How to Marry a Millionaire, were probably the four or five bigger titles. And again, you know, you get all of those nominated for Best Picture, somebody's got to come out top here, from here to eternity as well, obviously, which um, I believe won it, didn't it? Yes, from here to eternity won the Best Picture. And the returns from the box office, it had a budget of 1.6 million, and the box office returns were 10 million. Right. So... Certainly not an unsuccessful movie at the box office with that point from that point of view. It's just one of those it's one of those rare male heavy movies. How many female characters? How many of them have speaking parts in this? Well, as far as speaking in English, none. No. Um you've got the element that there's the Russian women queuing up to go into the the, the showers. Yeah. Um that they, they break out to go and try and chat to <laughs> and there's a few bits of dialogue from them, just the occasional word, but that's yeah. the very limit of it. There's it's just, no, yeah. there's no other women in this at, at all. Really, uh, certainly none that are speaking English and um, and doing a, you know any interaction in that sense. You know, yeah. so it is very much a, a male heavy heavy film, and obviously the nature of it is is that it is males in a in a preserve. But it will be, camp, yeah. But, it will be a male um, heavy, yeah. It's just one of the things that instantly came to me, you know, like 12 Angry Men is a very male-oriented film. Same as The Thing, you know, the John Carpenter's The Thing. There's definitely no female characters in that. Let's talk about some of the characters. Let's let's start with William Holden, first of all. You know, we have to point out here, initially, he won Best Actor at the Academy Awards. Okay, I always bring things back to the Oscars, but I think it generates a bit of conversation about what was going on at the time and sort of who was in contention and who were the other leading men. Uh, also in contention this year, right, let's let's give you the rundown. Marlon Brando for Julius Caesar. 
again, this this is this lineup, mate. Richard Burton for the robe. Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster from here to eternity. Um, and I think William Holden, when he collected his Oscar, said he wished that it had gone to either of those two guys. He's, he's, I think I remember reading that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was quite quite shocked about actually winning it above that stellar list of names there. And, and Billy Wilder loved William Holden because you think about it, he was in Sunset Boulevard and Sabrina as well. Yeah. So he used him quite often. And I think they, they worked well together from what I understand of some of the tweaks that were put in with the character. They both agreed um, about how the character as, a, as an anti-hero, as it were, should be tweaked, but how much humanity to put into him and how much to, to strip out. I think they both were, were very much... Um, working in tandem on that rather than having a different view and I think that's maybe you know something that was carried through to other films that they just had a, a, a creative understanding of each other it's an interesting character isn't it because you said anti-hero there which is exactly what he is yeah you shouldn't be rooting for this guy at all because <laughs> you know where he's stockpiling all all this black market stuff and you know doing lots of deals for cigarettes and and these are these illegal. What's he got? A, 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 an alcohol still, hasn't he? Going at one point yeah. and uh, mouse racing. Mouse racing. mouse racing. Mouse racing as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the telescope um, to look out over the the Russian shower, women showers. Yeah. And you know it's it's every, every which way to try and um, even right at the start. I mean, you know, he's taking bets from the other people about the fact that these men won't, won't make, make it, make it yeah. and they will be shot. And then, you know, collects his winnings based upon that, which obviously doesn't set him up as being popular. Exactly. We shouldn't, his, we shouldn't like him. We shouldn't like so, this character. And, you know, he, but then again, on the other side of it, you know, they, they all get some advantage of him in some way because they, they, you know, they do various ones of him go to him for for these things that he's selling on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they get the luxuries uh, okay, they're paying a price for it, but they're getting the luxuries rather than the fact that if he wasn't doing that, they wouldn't get them at all. So there is a, a, a piece of that sort of that he's, yes, he's getting um, a bit of advantage out of it, but they're, you know, he is actually um, not just keeping these things for himself, but he's obviously out for himself, but there are tinges within it where you see that he's he's occupying that role as a survival thing but he's not completely inhuman there are bits when he's been a bit um a bit more human and and has um sympathy for what's going on around but it's usually hidden the the guy who's who's catatonic and that keeps playing the musical instrument when it's just him and you know them two together and there's nobody else around you know shows him a bit of kindness and and such like but he obviously feels like like showing kindness is a weakness and don't want to be taken advantage of as he says when he first came into the camp he was taken advantage of within the first few days and lost his boots and and a red cross parcel and all sorts of things so he's hardened up but right at the end he shows uh, that the last last bit that he sees uh, see of him interacting with the rest of his cabin mates is the hard edge then there's a, a sort of a flourish of humanity and and humor and sort of trying to show that he's not completely uh, misanthropic which is quite useful but yeah he's, he's playing a role and he's not somebody you should really be rooting for in a way but you kind of do 
when he becomes falsely accused, he becomes the underdog that you want to actually see some justice in some way. Well, I'm no escape artist. Cigar cookie. You can be the heroes, the guys with fruit salad on your chest. Me, I'm staying put. I'm going to make myself as comfortable as I can. And if it takes a little trading with the enemy to get me some food or a better mattress, that's okay by septum. Why, you crud. This war's going to be over someday. Then what do you think we'll do to crowd kissers like you? We've seen that sort of character in a dozen different movies and TV oh, yeah, shows. Yeah. You know, that sort of character is like, say, from Flash Harry in the um, St. Trinian's movies, even to Private Walker in Dad's Army. You know, the spivvy type, yeah. you know, but we'll get anything this, for anybody. This is, this is where the, the parallel kind of alluded to before um, with um, the foreign affair, or foreign affair, which it, it is, I can't remember which it is, mm. uh, which is set in, in, in Berlin, has a link to the, the last film that we reviewed on here with regards to, to stars and stuff, because obviously uh, from, from Mr. Smith. Um, mm. But um, that is about somebody who, again, is an anti-hero, who you shouldn't be rooting for because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's cheating on his, his sweetheart at home and, and sells off the birthday cake that, that's been brought over and he's double dealing and he's, you know... But then he becomes a, a redeemed figure in a way, and but he again is somebody who's an anti-hero who's doing double dealing. Who isn't somebody you should be you should be rooting for. But um, there is a side to them that you think, well, actually, no, I, I, I don't want them to be, you know, completely sort of scuppered. And this is the 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 way with um, the the Holden character in in here, Sefton, whereby he does actually have some redeeming qualities, but they're just hidden under the the surface of getting advantage for himself really yeah it's, it's what sets him aside from your private walkers your flash harry type thing there is this this other this, this serious side it is not an entirely comedic character i think he's more certainly more on the drama side of this movie than the comedy side of the movie this particular character certain characters you can are there for comic relief certain characters are there purely for the drama side of things he's sort of tucked a little bit in the middle but he's it's more serious than anything um, yeah. as the story unfolds, you know, even more so. I didn't realise this. You've probably done a little bit of research and a little bit of reading, you know, since we last spoke and having watched this again. Have you seen Escape to Athena? I haven't, but I'm aware that there's... You a, know a, the story, a, yeah? And the character reappearing in a, in a way yeah. um, in, in that as a... As, as a token sort of thing that he's been captured again but then escapes again sort yeah. of thing but it's, it's sort of a, a subplot background thing rather than the main the main yeah. focus of it but yeah I'm, I'm aware that the character reappears I've seen were. that film a couple of times and I've seen that scene that we're talking about and it just didn't even click with me I just I watched it years ago probably didn't even realise and I watched it before I'd seen Stalag 17 anyway so I didn't wasn't even aware and it's Oh, when is it? It's, it's um, Telly Savalas, Roger Moore, David Nivens in it, Elliot Gould, aren't they? I think, and it's one of them. It's one of them bank holiday movies again, mate, isn't it? It was always on on a bank holiday weekend. Escape to Athena, and basically what happens? There's a scene in a prisoner of war camp in Escape to Athena, and Elliot Gould walks past William Holden, 
Yeah. Gives him like this really sort of bewildered look and says, are you still here? And that's it. That's all it is. Yeah. And there's this sort of in-joke reference. It's sort of implying that Sefton's continued to remain a prisoner of war all this time, but now he's in, I think it's Greece or somewhere, isn't it? I think it's... Yes, uh, yeah. That's the Athena. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and the, the, how it came about was when Escape to Athene was being made, uh, late 70s, 78, 79, he was dating Stephanie Powers, heart to heart, oh, right. okay. at the time. She's in the movie. So he spent a couple of days on the set, and the director, which was George P. Cosmatos, was the huge fan of Stalag 17. And he said, do you fancy just making a little cameo? We've got a scene set in a prisoner of war camp. I cannot miss this opportunity. And he went... Yeah, sure. I don't think he even got paid for it. Occasionally we have these things where um, sort of little cameo references to things. I mean, sometimes directors do it with their own work that puts sort of some um, echo previously in there. And, it's you know, when we notice it, we not only congratulate ourselves for noticing (laughs) it, but also we, you know, we appreciate the directors, you know, that they obviously have um, an affection for... The, the character or the part enough to be able to do that it, it, it sort of adds to our own um, affection I think for things and obviously William Holden um, obviously thought that the character was um, was something, something he wanted to re, you know was willing to revisit because he, he was aware that there was that uh, affection to it um, I mean we've had that through plenty of things I mean all the Doctor Who stuff for a start off but mm. um, but through other things as well, and I think it's very much nice that 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 does crop up in the way that it, it's just a, a throwaway, rather than it was something that they made more of. If they made more of it, it might be a bit more tacky. But this was this is obviously done in the right way. It's um, a tongue-in-cheek cameo because you've got to imagine yeah. he's twenty-five years older as well, so it's obviously yeah. you know not going to be the same character. But the influences are there. You know, it's just. Yeah. Uh, yeah, William Holden in a prisoner of yeah. war camp. It's an opportunity that couldn't be missed. It, yeah, and I think that that's um, it. Does just add to the the, the character um, depth, really? Because you can, you know, you got to wonder. I mean, he makes a reference right at the end of the film to, um, as I said, to what if he saw the you know any of the other inmates um, in the street in the states, you know, mm. how how they should just. Um, pretend they've never met each other and that you know it, you, you gotta wonder what the characters you know would have gone on to after, you know after the the um the climax of the film and some of these you know you get characters in certain films where you that is something you wonder you think well I wonder what then happened to that character the story for you isn't necessarily ended just when the credits come up and this is you know it's, it's obviously a, a, a central part of this film as a character, but also he's got enough about him to to warrant people being further interested in him. But the cameo of it is just, yeah, um, fun, fun, but also uh, rewarding for us, I think. Yeah, and, and sort of doing a bit of research and a bit of digging this last couple of days, I'm pretty sure I wasn't aware of how big this movie actually is and how important it is sitting in the whole of Hollywood history. All right, it's a Billy Wilder movie. It's in the middle of this massive run of ten that he's, you know, we we mentioned earlier, and it always appears on sort of top twenties and top fifty lists. You know, it's always sort of there. But for me, it was never sort of registered 
as being that major Hollywood classic, which I think a lot of people actually hold it, you know, in, in such esteem. Yeah. And, and the more I've been sort of digging into the, you know, sort of the background and, and things like that cameo in Escape to Athena, it's, it's quite influential. It's quite an important and famous movie. The rest of the cast aren't particularly well known. William Holden, obviously the biggest name, and then you've got Otto Preminger. Preminger, which is you know, uh, you know, we know him from directing himself, really. Well, most yeah. recently, Real Britannia, we did an episode on Bunny Lake is Missing, absolutely directed. Yeah. But then you um, think this is the man that did the man with the golden arm, um, which is um, where you know he, it, him acting and, and his apparently uh, with Billy Wilder saying that the only time he shouted at um, his actors are when they forgot the lines. So if he forgot um, his lines in the film, he would. Um, I don't know what gift it was. It was some little gift, um, something like caviar or something like that. I yeah. Think it was. Um, give him a tin of caviar if he um, if he um, forgot his lines. <laughs> and um, by the end of the film, he, you know, Billy Wilder had a stack of, of caviar. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I think you know he performs that that role incredibly well. I think the the the, um, the character is exactly right for what the character should be yes. but also I think he performs it incredibly well and I think you know he does uh, certainly seems to uh, to relish it as well he was an actor before he became a director I think he was an actor in Austria uh, before he came to Hollywood and, and you talking about you know it, it must be difficult for a director to direct another director it must be so difficult you know when he appears there he had that famous quote Otto Preminger about he, he directed Marilyn Monroe in I think it was River of No Return, one of those lesser Munro movies, you know. Yeah. And he yeah. said, it wasn't the one about kissing Hitler because that was Tony Curtis, wasn't it? But he said something like directing Marilyn Munro was like directing Lassie. You, you needed 14 takes to get each one of them right or something like that, you know. It <laughs> was quite derogatory about Marilyn Munro. Quick question connection between Otto Preminger and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Um... Apart from being Austrian. I was going to say that's the only thing I can think of Austrian, uh, Austrian yeah. Um, to do with his acting. I don't know what I'm oh. going to say they're both bodybuilders. Um, no. <laughs> different kind of bodies, though. One, no. one, one was got him off the barrel shape, and the other one was. Um, this is the, they both played the same character. All right, Mister Freeze. Mr. Freeze, Otto Preminger was one of the actors oh, that gosh, played Mister yeah, Freeze in, in the Batman in Adam Batman West TV series. Yeah, because I think wasn't um. Didn't Eli Wallach or somebody play Eli, um, Mr. Freeze, didn't he, at one point? There was about three different people that mm. played him. But Otto Preminger was one of the Mr. Freeze incarnations. Mm. Yeah, yeah, perfectly suited. You know, you need an Otto Preminger to play a camp commandant. I love the scene in particular where the Red Cross inspector's there and he's quite relaxed in his socks in his office, just showing that different side of him, you know, and it's that whole... Uh, we're being inspected by the Red Cross, so we're going to get new blankets and pillows, and, and the whole place is going to be scrubbed clean. And yeah, just that whole attitude of him. And it's it, as I say, it, you need a genuine Austrian or German actor to have played that character. It's, it's probably the most famous face apart from William Holden in this movie. Yeah, I mean, the one apparently they wanted to um, make the camp guards Polish rather than German. Oh, um, right, so they okay. could sell the, the film better in Germany, but um, Billy Wilder kicked up a fuss about that, but being Polish himself. Um, yeah, and, and this film was delayed yeah. for a year, wasn't it, in the US, because of um, something to do with the, the subject matter, but then I think there was 
well, the, real the prisoners of war. Yeah, they, they thought it wasn't going to be um, very commercially successful. Yeah. So they were sort of didn't didn't know what to do with it and when to release it. And then the Korean prisoner prisoners of war got mm. released. So there were, it was you know a, a zeitgeist thing about prisoners of war and people talking about you know prisoners of war in in Korea. Yeah, and there was that interest, obviously, in the news talking about the the people and everything. So it was that they then had that opportunity to release it, and it was opportunism really that and probably worked well in the favour of the film and meant it would you know got more of a, a notice for us, but um, to remember it by. But yeah, that was the opportunism that was taken at the time because they weren't they were trying to find ways of, of marketing it and also, you know, that's why they were looking at ways of making it more appealing to foreign markets such as Germany by changing the nationality of the, yeah. of the cast and such like. And um, I think Billy Wilder had a bit of a fallout with the studio over it and I think it was one of the contributing factors to the, to him not renewing his contract with them and, and going elsewhere because of the way that they were insensitive about those things. Yeah, and it'll also explain why it was released here before in the US, got it four weeks later. Have you got any favourite characters out of the sort of like eight or nine other major speaking parts? Because I've got a few notes here about some of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it shouldn't really be um, somebody that you're a, a favourite of, but the sergeant of the guards, who is the one that come, you know, the, the German guard that comes yes. in and is, is having the jokes with them. Um, Ex-wrestler, I believe, in, in as, as far as the character goes, mm. not the actor. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. And in having been to Cleveland and such like this. And <laughs> Milwaukee, he has, yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's having the jokes with them, but obviously, you know, he's still a German guard that can't be trusted. But the fact that he's having a joke with them and they're making jokes of him, um, but then him actually responding in kind in a way means that there's a bit of humanity in there from from that side, which is it makes the it makes the film less oppressive, uh, which is useful for the, the the plotting of the film. I think but it's the most comedic character, perform- yeah. Mm. And I think it's performed quite well. It's performed with the relevant amount of comedy, and then also you know sort of sudden mood sometimes changing when he realizes the joke's gone too far, which is is fine. Um, so I think that that does add a, a, a nice dimension to the film that would. So appreciating that character and the, the performance as well um, is one of the, the ones in there, definitely. Did you recognise any of the other faces? Because there's a couple. Um, I did, a, f- a few of them, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, Peter Graves. Yes. Recognise him, definitely. Robert Strauss, who plays Animal, I did recognise him, but I couldn't quite work out he was in, um, where from, though. But uh, he's been in a few things. He was in The Man with the Golden Arm. Yeah, um, and I believe he was in Seven Year Itch as well. So he's just one of those character actors. Tragic story, you know, the Robert Strauss that played Animal. Tragic, yeah. tragic story. He, he suffered like severe depression for most of his life. You know, one of those classic cases of the tears of a clown. You know, one of those yeah, really yeah. funny guys have got these really dark, dark moods going on. And and towards the end, he was he was only sixty one when he died, like early seventies, nineteen seventies. His final years, he was incapacitated because um, he was suffering from the effects of multiple bouts of electroshock therapy. Oh, right. Which led to a stroke that paralysed him um, and a further one that killed him. A further stroke he had about 75, 76. But yeah, he got paralysed through this electroshock therapy that he had 
for his depression. His real classic one flew over the cuckoo's nest case there, mate. Yeah, horrible story. That's really a, a double act. Um, <laughs> yeah, with, um, is it Shapiro? Shapiro, yeah, uh, which is... A common theme that runs through lots of films. I know we, you know, we could talk about it a lot more. The the common theme, you know, going from Akira Kurosawa up to the Star Wars films, where you've got the, you know, sort double, of double acts yeah. that are kind of a, a bit of light relief in a way. Having those in as characters, I think, is is useful again to the film and the plotting and and making sure that it doesn't end up being as dour as it. It could be as oppressive as it could be with the subject matter. And I think that they play off each other incredibly well. I'm not sure if I remember correctly whether they were both playing the same parts in the actual stage play or not. I know Robert Strauss was in the original production. So, yeah, so, I mean, you know, obviously memorable in in that sense um, for for what they've done. Obviously, you just can't escape remembering the the, the mailman coming in shouting... Marco the mailman! Yeah, Alice, Alice. <laughs> with his wine, wine, wine voice, but um, his character is a bit more sort of downplayed as well. He but, was um, he was in the original production on Broadway. He recreated yeah. his role. I had to check because that incredible New York accent, and he he was born in Brooklyn. I had to double check just to make sure. <laughs> oh, that's enough, Annie, Annie, Annie's, Annie's. All right, break it off down there. Eddie's for the news. All right, Eddie's. Today's camp news. Father Murray announces that due to local regulations, the Christmas midnight mass will be held at 7 in the morning. 7? He also says, quote, all you sack rats better show up for services and no bull from anybody, unquote. Uh, Eddie. Eddie's. Next. Monday afternoon, a sailboat race will be held at the cesspool. See Oscar Rudolph for Barracks 7 if you wish to enter a yacht. <laughs> All right, Eddie. Eddie's. Next. Jack Cushingham and Larry Blake will play Frank Donata and Mike Cohn for the Pinochle Championship of the Camp. That's a fix. Yeah. All right, Eddie. Eddie's. Next. Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock. All men from Texas will meet behind the North Latrine. <laughs> All right, Eddie. Next, a warning from the Commandant. <laughs> Anybody found throwing rocks at low-flying German aircraft will be thrown in the boo. <laughs> All right, Eddie. Are the doors covered? Yeah, the doors are covered. Okay, Steve, give him the radio. I suppose they want to single out not be, not for presence on screen or for for acting quality as such. What's his name? Trusinski, um, well, who's the yeah. guy who gets the dear John letter but doesn't realise it's a dear John letter. Um, that saying, is so oh, funny. You, you won't believe it, but I've found you know found a baby on the on the doorstep, and, <laughs> and she's like, why why wouldn't I believe it? I believe it. I believe. Um, and we, everybody else knows that you know. <laughs> yeah, she's she's had a baby by somebody else, and she's just. Um, and you see him later, but, and he's knitting the booties as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's actually um, the the guy who wrote the original screenplay. That's him. He was imprisoned um, at the, the so, original stag, um, yeah. Which is, you know, so that's um, worth pointing out that, that he's in there. But, yeah, I think that the, the rest of them are a bit more interchangeable than that. Peter Graves we know from Mission Impossible TV series and, and the pilot in Airplane in his yeah. later career. Lieutenant Dunbar is a guy called Don Taylor. Oh, yes, yeah. Now, go back a couple of years, he plays Elizabeth Taylor's husband in the Father of the Bride movies. 
you're going to say it's of Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> yeah, one of her, one of her seven hundred husbands. No. Uh, he was yeah. the, and later in his career, he became a director himself. Uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. You know the one where, oh, they, go, yeah. where they go back yeah, in yeah. back in time to New York or, or San Francisco. He directed Omen Two. Damien, which has also got William Holden in it. He directed that, Don Taylor. Anybody else? Let's have a little look. I don't think there's anybody else we've really missed, have we? Uh, the guy that played Harry Shapiro was more famous for TV work in sort of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. He did a lot of those beach movies, like the Frankie Avalon early 60s beach movies, but appeared in every single sort of sitcom throughout the 70s. He died on the set of Morgan Mindy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so much trivia going around the, all these characters. When you think, yeah, there's not a lot going. I don't recognise them. They didn't have much of a career. But when you dig a little bit deeper, and I recognised Cookie, who's also the narrator, isn't he? On this, yes. And the the interesting thing is, on repeated watches, you started you start noticing little things in the way that he the narration. Mm. Thankfully, it's not narrated all the way through. Yes. It's just, there's, there's just points. There's a little subtle hint at, at one point when he's he's talking that gives a bit more of an indication to how he feels about a certain character and how then that um, transpires what you know what the actual outcome is for that character. I think is is nice to have in there that it's narrated by them and they're they're precursor in the reveal, um, yeah. but subtly. Is there any need for the narration? Because obviously there wouldn't have been a narration on the original stage production. Is it? Is it necessary here? I don't. I don't think there's. I don't think it's a need. I don't think it necessarily takes away from it. But I don't. Mm. I don't think it was necessary. I think they could have got away without it. I'm not sure whether it was just that the, it was just a, a device that was used, and maybe they were just trying the hand at it because there was other films around at the time that had been using narration, and they just thought, oh well, you know, we'll we'll put that in. But then again, maybe you had it that you know in in the stage play there was an introductory piece in the um, the, the program that set up the film that the player before you know, the actors came on stage and therefore that's where it came from. I don't know, but it wasn't absolutely necessary. No, it could have could have got away without having it there, and it wouldn't have been to the detriment of the film. It's probably just a, a nice bit of sort of like creative. A bit of a creative spark on behalf of, say, uh, Billy Wilder, just to try and differentiate it away from a stage production. You know, let's let's just do something that the stage production wouldn't have had. So a narration might be a, a different way of saying, look, this is a movie now. This is a movie version. We can do this. Let's make a conscious decision not to spoil this movie, I think, at this point. That's why I was dancing around it, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I do like about, as I said before, is that I allow myself to forget the reveal, yes, uh, which 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 makes it more enjoyable. So to not spoil it for other people, I, I, I think that's a, a fair yeah um, decision to make. I uh, think, as we said, because I don't think it was shown that often on UK TV. At least it might be different in America. It might be something that's shown every weekend for all we know. I've got a funny feeling there's there's a fair few of our listeners that may have avoided this or just not come across it. And I don't want to reveal it. And as you say, it's this kind of Agatha Christie whodunit plotline running through the story. And interestingly, the movie was filmed chronologically. You know, normally then films are never filmed well, in sequence, yeah, so are they? The, yeah, so that the actual actors themselves didn't know who the, the rat 
was until the the relevant scenes came up where yeah. that was revealed. Really, I mean, obviously the actor who played the rat was would have been uh, aware. And also uh, the guy so, that wrote uh, the play is actually <laughs> acting in the movie as well. Yeah, but yeah. unless they've changed it from the original production, we don't know at this point. Well, I certainly don't know anyway. Um, but yeah, we'll keep we'll, we'll encourage anybody to watch this not only because it's a bloody fine movie. But there is that element to it as well. And like I say, I'd forgotten who the informant was until it actually came came about on the screen this second time around. And I think it's quite incredible that you've watched it four or five times and you still can't, still can't remember. Well, I, I, as I say, it's more allowing myself to forget. And as the film goes on, I do you know I do get it before the yeah. um, the, the the first reveal it sort of it comes back to me. Yeah, but. The longer that takes, the better for me, for my enjoyment. Although even even if I remember from the beginning, I'd still enjoy the film. But, Must be a good um, indication of how good an actor that particular person is then, for him to well, do it, that it, to you. That, yeah, it's absolutely. It's the way in which the, the reveal is, is done allows you to gradually get it, rather than it being you know something that is obvious from the beginning anyway they they tease it and they tease it and build up to it rather than it being a a sudden reveal so even if you do actually get it early on you kind of um congratulating yourself (laughs) going oh oh yeah aren't i clever even after the reveal the the plot still continues for a good half an hour Uh, you know you think okay well i know who the informant is but where's the story going to go now now that we know who it is so, yeah, you've got to work. It's it's you find out before the rest of the people find out. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, and then you've got them dealing with the situation once they do find out in in the film. So it's it's kind of a a free stage process. But that's not, because it's a two hour long film, which doesn't feel two hours. But because it's two hours long, they can give the build up to to it enough time without having to rush through and actually allow you to realise the consequences uh, um, not just of this rap revealing um, their schemes to the, the guards but also the consequences on the falsely accused yeah. um, Sefton um, so that then that's given an, enough time to actually play out for you to actually want there to be some comeuppance at the end of it whereas if it, it was a quick half hour of it building up to it you might not actually appreciate the full full severity of, of you know what was being done underhandedly I know we've sort of touched on this before but if you were to describe this to somebody that hadn't seen it what genre would you put this movie under because it's not a war film on IMDB it's listed as comedy drama war and, <laughs> it's covering um, every base and, yeah. and to be perfectly honest I think that in in the broadest sense of of the, ter- the the category, I think that this actually comes in on you know under the crime drama. That's why I was asking because there yeah. is that element to it as well. And there's the best thing, you know there's there's comedy in there to 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 flesh it out, and it's definitely you know definitely does have drama and um, is set during the war. But I think the main element for me is this who done it crime element to yeah. it, which is is more of a category than the the other ones that are listed on MDB really. It's one of those rare movies that if you're sitting indoors one evening and you don't know what you want to, you know, what you fancy watching, just put this on because it covers every base. Yeah. Apart, apart from musicals and romance. <laughs> and 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 I 
um, and sci-fi. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, I um, for this week for the rewatch, um, you know, knowing I enjoyed the film and knowing the where it sat as far as a genre and, and stuff, there was maybe two or three opportunities that I had to watch it, and I picked very carefully when to watch it to, to maximise my enjoyment of it because although I would have enjoyed it any night I watched it, mm. I definitely wanted to, to sort of do it right when I could, um, when I knew I was um, I was able to give it my full attention, I wasn't, you know, tired or distracted by other things going on you know, I didn't have a meeting in the morning that was occupying part of my brain or anything like that, I wanted to make sure that I could give it, give it that attention and be absorbed by it um, in that way because it, it that's getting the best out of it and it is um, it, it does reward you all the way through I, I think I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that that selects when to watch certain movies because certain movies deserve I don't know it, it sounds weird you can watch a movie in the afternoon but some movies I find have to be watched later at night in the dark or you, you know it, it, you, you do exactly the same as me by the sound of it mate you'll you, Pick a movie and think, okay, well, that's a Sunday afternoon job, or that one's oh, yeah. a, that's a Friday night movie. That one, yeah, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's um, you know, even with my wiki wacky no pattern lifestyle of, of <laughs> um, you know, Friday nights uh, or Saturday nights or, or whatever, there's not any pattern uh, to me that that necessarily means I'm not getting up early for the uh, meeting in the morning or, or work or whatever, but um, it's still absolutely there's. It even comes down to some extent sometimes to, you know, what the weather's like. I mean, you're yeah. coming back from somewhere over and it's it's tipping down with rain, or you're you're coming, you know, it's actually sunny outside or whatever. You, these things also affect um, your mood, mm. um, but also the timing of when you watch something is part, absolutely part of the ingredient to decide um, what, what film to be watching and when. A lot of it's memory um, for me as well. I, I often remember when I first saw a movie. Like, say, for example, this this sounds really weird and it might be very strange. What, from, Mid- from me, yeah. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy, Dustin Hoffman, John Voight. Don't tell me you always have to watch that at midnight. No, no, that has to be on a Friday evening after 10 o'clock. Because that's when I first saw it. It's one of those Friday night BBC One movies. After yeah. 10 o'clock. Same as Cool Hand Luke was always shown at that time. If I watch them at any other time, which I have done, it, it, I'll watch them, I'll enjoy them, but it's like, doesn't seem right on a Sunday afternoon watching Midnight Cowboy. That's, that's a late night Friday movie there's, for there's, me. There's, there's probably a thing that we could do in the pub where we could go through a list of, of films that we know we've, you know we've seen a number yeah. of times and we could go through and, and say, right, when do you remember watching Loving, that? Loving a Hill Mob. And you have to say what time of day you'd watch it. Um, uh, that and, would be... A, you, could yeah. probably, you could probably go through all of those and it would, probably would strongly tie in with what you're saying there. Carry On that, Movies are a, a weekend afternoon. Yeah. Um, Ealing Comedies, weekend afternoon. Yeah. And, that, and, that, <laughs> and that's, as you say, it's probably not just... Not just the genre or the, the the nature of the film, you know, a light-hearted comedy or whatever is something easier to watch in the afternoon or whatever. It's probably a lot of it is linked to our own personal experiences and that subliminal memory of when we first when we watched, watched it. Them. Yeah. Um, and that's why we identify it with that that time, and that's why we think part of us thinks that's when we, we should be watching that film. We shouldn't be watching it out of 
out of sync with what the the time of day is or whatever. So, and we've us, me and you have already established that uh, a lot of our history of when we've watched films is the same. Yeah, um, it's probably why we agree um, to a certain extent on when to watch things. <laughs> well, usually for for this and the Real Britannia podcast, I generally watch the movie that we're going to discuss on the Thursday or the Friday evening before we record at the weekend, mainly to keep it fresh in my mind, uh, particularly if it's one that I've not seen before. With this, I was off last Monday and I watched it Monday afternoon because I had no particular memories of this yeah. movie watching it previously apart from watching it on think, DVD yeah. when I first saw it 18 months ago. Um, yeah, I can get that, whereas with me... I did first watch this on an afternoon. Yeah. So, um, so it was. I normally watch things like you say. It's either a, a Thursday, um, or it's on a Saturday. Yeah. And I will change those around based upon whether it feels like a, a, a weekday movie or a weekend strange. movie. It's really and, strange. And whether it feels like an afternoon <laughs> or an evening, because both of those days, uh, you know, there's, it gives me the option of afternoons or evenings and yeah I, I watched i watched this on on saturday afternoon are we alone um, in this i'm wondering if the listeners <laughs> out there on, are, on the facebook and ask yeah are, yeah are we the only two strange people in the world that do this i, I bet we're not alone but but i wouldn't surprise me if if there was a small very small number of people and the vast majority of people would think we were completely Insane. stupid and mad yes. but there'll be a small core of people who'll go Yes, I do absolutely that. Absolutely, yes. I've always done that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Summarising for me, do you know what? Sometimes I struggle with movies that have been adapted from plays. If they're done badly, you're obviously not going to enjoy them. But to get a good adaptation, you need not only a great cast, which we've got here, but you need like a really creative director or a cinematographer just to try and bring the movie out of the confines of a stage environment. So, luckily, you've got Billy Wilder. And when you look at the movie, obviously the original production would have just been set in the hut, possibly, on stage. I can't imagine there being too many changes of set or scenery. No, the Commandant's office, perhaps, that's about it. Possibly, yeah. that's about it. But with this, we get the narration, we get the external scenes, you know, we get that whole scene where they're painting the white line down the road to get into yeah. the the women's camp you know obviously that wouldn't have been in the original stage production yeah uh the commandant's office like i said that may have been but that whole scene where he's meeting the red cross officer in his socks the roll call the latrine you know there's extra little bits so it needs a creative sort of screenwriter and director and cinematographer to lift it away from the stage confines and it's not just a progression of actors in one location just saying their lines so all in all, bearing in mind it was a, a busy year for those big movies, it's it's certainly up there for me. It's not one... Well, I'm, I'm going to try and explain this as best I can. I've seen it twice, I've enjoyed it twice. It's not a movie that I would particularly go back to again and again, but it is certainly a classic. It's got a well-deserved Oscar for William Holden. I mean, put him in any prisoner of war movie, you can't go wrong. Look at Bridge on the River Choir, you know. He's, <laughs> I was going to say carved a niche out there, but he didn't. It was just two particular movies. And I've seen it now, twice in 18 months, two years. I'm in no massive rush to go back to it. But I'm going to give it four stars. Because watching it this time round, it still had that marvellous 
thing that's rare in a lot of movies that still kept me guessing up until the reveal, even though I knew who it was. Uh, I appreciated the script writing a lot more this time round. I appreciated the acting a lot time uh, a lot more this time round. And when you look at it as being smack bang in the middle of that ten movie run for Billy Wilder, it's an important piece of Hollywood, mate. It's sadly, I think it is overlooked in this country at least. Uh, certainly not one that's shown on British TV that often, or, or never was when we were kids. And for people that like an intelligent comedy with quite a bit of drama to it and that whodunit mystery crime type element as well, I'm going to urge people to see it. Four stars for me. Over to you. <laughs> um, well, not necessarily needing to see it on the big screen, but I do think people should go out of the way to see it. Yep. It's got um, a broad appeal in the sense that, as you say, it covers a, a few different genres, and if you're not particularly interested in war or or the the sort of whodunit element, then you've still got some of the um, the, the comedy parts in there yeah. and the character study parts. So I think it's useful um, to to emphasise its broad appeal. I think that people should search it out. I do agree with you entirely that that. It's not one to return to frequently, mm. which is why I, I give it a, a few years between rather than there are some films that you and I both will watch probably oh, once yeah. a year. Once or twice um, a year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whereas this isn't one of them. I, you know, I will deliberately not watch it again, which is why I haven't watched it for a couple of years because I wanted to, um, in the last few years, I we wanting to see if there was a way of having it as a review at some point. Um on podcast and thankfully the opportunity has arisen by yourself so um and i agree i don't think it's got the exposure over here in in the uk as it might have done over in the states partly to do with the fact that it's more about um whenever you get war films they tend to um be more emphasizing that country's own yes um part in that war and there's no british characters in this at all no not like some, you know, like The Great Escape where there's, there's Brits and Americans there at the same time. Mm. This is, you know, purely Americans with a few Russian um, ladies thrown in. Yes. Um, and so I do think you're right that it hasn't got the exposure over in, in this country uh, for us, our generation, whether previously it was more popular or more aware, I don't know. I think, you know, there is the older generation that knows, I think, that would recognise a reference to um, Starlog 17 mm-hmm. um, but um, certainly younger people wouldn't unfortunately so I would say people should go out the way to try and try and see it um, but it's not a film to be watching frequently because that's kind of spoils it if you watch it too often yeah I think people that have avoided it thinking they're not going to like a war movie thinking it's something it's not a war movie it's something completely different i would encourage anybody to at least give it a go absolutely okay so stalag 17 1953 Stephen, you are going to be back in about three episodes time if things go to plan great so we'll be back with my choice of movie after this and now preview time When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. 
Okay, mate, last time you were here, we spoke about Frank Capra. This time it was Billy Wilder. Coming up very soon, we've got a guest joining us to discuss an Alfred Hitchcock movie, if I remember rightly. I'm sure we've made plans for an Alfred Hitchcock, haven't we, at some point? At some point, yeah. Let's continue with the big directors. At first, I was going to go with Howard Hawks, but we covered Only Angels Have Wings recently. I was thinking William Wyler, Kubrick, John Huston. How are you with Westerns? Um, well, I think I've said before about Westerns that mm. um, the vast majority of Westerns, I think, um, were done, just churned out yeah. at a certain era, just the way the comic book ones are now. Okay. Churned out. Um, but that shouldn't negate the fact that there are some absolute gems in there as um, great films. Okay. And um, they happen to be Westerns, but they're still great films. So um, they're the ones that I favour rather than just um, a, a generic, oh, I like Westerns sort of the thing. Ones I, like, that were... I like good Westerns. Yeah. So, um, so okay. yeah. I'm going to let you down then. No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Not for the first time. Well, no. when you're talking classic westerns and well-made westerns, top of the tree, you've got to look at John Ford. I think you'll yeah. agree. Yep. We haven't covered too many westerns on the show, and I think the only John Ford movie we covered previously was not a western. It was The Grapes of Wrath. I was originally going to go with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but as we did Jimmy Stewart last time, I thought, no, let's let's leave that one, because... My favourite actor, I don't want to influence it too often. You talking about well-made classic westerns also got a little bit of controversy in it to today's audiences. Let's go with The Searchers. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> You're probably the perfect person to talk to uh, about this movie. I don't think, and I've got nothing against Liam and, and Paul, but I don't think they would enjoy The Searchers. Uh, I think it would, you know, be too dated for them, and I don't think they're massive fans of old westerns. They like, say, your tombstones or your unforgivens. But yeah, I need to talk John Ford. I need to talk a bit of John Wayne with you, mate. I'm going to enjoy reviewing this out. I think it is one of the, the you know, the classic um, ones. Yeah, that have you seen it? That category of well-made. Yes, I have. Yeah. Excellent. How long ago? Because I haven't seen it for a little while. Probably four years. Okay. Probably about the same as me, four or five. Um, I did start watching it a couple of months ago, got about 20 minutes into it, but it was late at night and it's quite a long movie and I thought, no, I, I want to give this a proper proper viewing. And, and again, with the timescale, people might not understand, we're recording this episode on the 15th of March. By the time me and Stephen get together again, Easter will have come and gone. I will probably watch this on Bank Holiday Monday, Easter. <laughs> I've already planning in my head when to watch the movie. <laughs> which which feels just right. Really. Is, is it a bank holiday? It's a bank holiday Monday movie, isn't it? I think it, it is for us. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it from another stinking pause. Please go and join us on the Facebook group and the Twitter feed as well. Come and follow us there, Stephen. Thank you for being back again, mate. This is turning out to be a wonderful regular occurrence. Well, it's certainly something I, as I said at the beginning, it's something I um, relish, enjoy doing. Oh, bless um, you. So thank you for the opportunity. And, um, yeah, I'll en- enjoy um, being a frequent um, guest as long as you'll have me. 
So. Oh, I don't see why not. I talk to you most Sunday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've become kind of inured to, to me now. So. Yeah, I, I, I know you worry about me if you don't hear from me from one week to the next. But, you know, it's, it's a two-way street, mate. So. <laughs> That's quite right, though. <laughs> That's it. That's the stinking pause. Thanks for being there, Steve. See you soon, mate. Take care. management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astrid, I'm stepping infernal jamborees worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said, don't wear a frown, try positive thinking, laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side, on hope so much depends, with your confidence sinking, positive thinking helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try Positive thinking, treat every season as spring. No glancing back, try. Positive thinking, trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking, we'll get together and life won't let us down. Shut up. Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.